0: I am so delighted that Ray Vanderlaan is with us this morning. We've had a wonderful weekend with him, and in many ways I feel like he is an old friend and not new to you at all. He was with us in 2010, and in fact it was in that very year I had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land with him. Ray is just a dynamo for the Lord. He is just so on fire for the Lord, and the Lord just shines through him in all that he does, and he inspires me. He's taught me so much, and I know that he's going to inspire and teach you this morning. He is a special guy. He's been married to his wife, Esther, for 43 years. He has four children. Did I say that right? 43 years, four children, 16 grandchildren. I mean, that's rich. And uh, on top of that, Ray is the Bible, Bibli- the chair of Biblical Cultural Studies at Holland Christian Schools in Holland, Michigan. He founded that the world may know ministries with focus on the family. He's the creator of Faith Lessons, which is a video series, and he's our friend. And he's here this morning. Will you war- give him a warm welcome, Ray Vanderlaan
1: <laughs> Good morning. It is a privilege to be here this morning for lots of reasons, one of which is it's always an honor to join folks in worship and even to be invited to lead a portion of that worship. And I'm highly honored, I'm humbled that you would ask me to do that. So it's great to be here. It's great to be here because I had a phenomenal experience here in 2010. Um, I was really touched by things I saw God doing in this community and particularly in Grace Community Church. Um, There's no doubt God has a work going here I'm eager to get back again to my seniors at Holland Christian and tell them that God is alive and well in California. I think they know that, but if you don't know anybody or you don't know what's going on in a place, it's a little harder to to, um, comprehend that. So it's great to be here. Had a great time at our seminar this weekend. I spoke at Central Valley Christian. That was a very wonderful time there with faculty and students. So it's been great. I can't wait to uh, share it with those I will go back to. I will have to leave immediately after the service. Um, I'm sorry about that, I'd love to hang around and greet you and meet you, but I have a dog sled race I'm in tomorrow. Uh, just kidding, I come from Michigan, so um, we got 16 inches of snow on our, in our town and I'm, I need to get back for commitments tomorrow and my, I'll have to hustle to get to my flight. We have had some conversations you might be interested in. Um, your community has asked if we could arrange a trip to Israel and Turkey following the disciples, spending five days with the disciples in Israel and then 10 days with Paul in Turkey, places like Ephesus and Colossa and uh, cities like this. So we've planned tentatively to do that in the fall of 2016 and uh, that's exciting to me. I had a great time with the group that came from this church in 2010 and it was a wonderful adventure. That was all in Israel. This one we'll look at the next step. So. If that's something of interest to you, pray about it, and we'll see if, what God can work out. But that's what we hope to do. Anyway, let's go to our time of worship this morning. Would you stand one more time, please? Those of you who joined us this weekend, we learned that in the Jewish world, there's the belief that the Bible is the inspired word of God, just as we Christians think, and that when God speaks, He expects an, a response, a response of belief and a response of obedience to prepare for that a Jew will always stand and say God I'm yours and I'm ready to listen they use the words of Deuteronomy 6 the ones Jesus called the greatest of the commandments as a way of saying God you are my god alone and my heart my mind my strength is here for you to teach we use I use that every time I teach we used it this weekend to put ourselves in connection with the fact that those Jews of the Bible are our ancient spiritual ancestors, say a bit of Hebrew after me if you'd like, and then we'll say the English together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, say Echad, Ve'ahavta Et Adonai Elohecha, Bechol, Levavcha, Uvachol, Uvachol. Nafshecha. Uvachol, Uvachol, Uvachol Meodecha. Amen. Veahavta. La Reacha. Kamocha. Amen. Amen. Together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. Please sit down for my words. The seminar this weekend was titled Old and New Treasures, in a way, keeping with the theme you've had here for a few weeks, I understand, but somewhat different treasures than what you've looked at. We noted that Jesus, in his teaching, often chose to use his Bible. Now, it's not something Christians think about or talk about so much, partly because we believe Jesus is the sinless Son of God. And whatever he says is Bible. So why would he need to use a Bible when all he has to do is speak and it is Bible? Well, the answer is that's probably true, but he chose to use his Bible. So our whole weekend, what I did at the Christian school, as well as what I did here for this community at Fox Theater yesterday, was focused on Jesus' use of his Bible. Now, he said one time, say it with me, these words from Matthew, he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a storehouse who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Very words of God. Now, in the Jewish mind, old treasures are the Hebrew Bible, the things that God had done before. We call it Old Testament. New treasures are the way you take those old teachings interpret them and apply them to a new situation. So in a way, what your pastors do here every week is to take old treasures, the treasures of God's word, which have been around for a long time, and to proclaim them to you in a way that helps you to walk in 2014. Those become the new treasures. And so that would argue that Jesus is saying, what I'm telling you is applied now, it's truth here today, but it's rooted in the ancient treasures of the Hebrew Bible. Now, let me show you uh, how Jesus used his Bible. And this was our whole weekend, so I can't do any more than just give you a list. But Jesus used his Bible three ways. One, he quoted it. About two dozen times, he said, it is written and quoted a verse. Those are easy. They're obvious. You know he's using his Bible. Then, he sometimes alluded to it By the words he chose, by choosing certain words, he knew his audience would say, hey, I know where that word came from. It's from Jeremiah. It's from Psalms. And by doing that, they would, in their mind, bring in that Bible passage. Sometimes he alluded to the ancient Bible passages by his actions. Now, all of that is pretty abstract, so let me look at three quick examples with you, and then we'll study one this morning. He had 12 disciples, and he took them up on a mountain, and he gave them a sermon which kind of summarizes all of his teachings. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a Jew would have instantly said, why 12 disciples? Why not 10? Why not 15? Why not 20? Their answer would have been Moses, the first Moses, and God had promised Moses there will be a second Moses, the Messiah. The first Moses led 12 tribes went to Mount Sinai, and God gave him the summary of all of Israel's beliefs. So Jesus was saying, I'm the second Moses, by having 12 disciples and giving them a sermon on the mount. His actions linked what he was doing back to the book of Exodus. Or another example, he had five fishermen. Scholars believe there may have been a dozen fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, total, it was not a big industry at all for all kinds of reasons. Out of 12, Jesus has five fishermen. Why? We don't know for sure. But Jeremiah says, in the day the Messiah comes, he will send for many fishermen and they will catch them. So if Jesus showed up with five fishermen, people said, look at that, he's got 12 disciples. He must think he's the coming Moses, the Messiah. And five of them are fishermen. He must think his work Fulfills what Jeremiah said about all those fishermen. Now, notice what he's doing. He's alluding to Bible passages without quoting them. The one we use this weekend is his first miracle. Think of it. He turned water to wine. 180 gallons of Manichevites. Now, that's strange if you think about it. Of all the things he could have done, all the sick people, all the hungry people, he makes 180 gallons of wine. Why? The prophet Joel says, when Messiah comes, the mountains will drip with an abundance of wine. And people said, look at all that wine. I've not seen that much wine together at one place in a long time. You don't think he thinks he's the guy that Joel says will come and produce an abundance of wine. And he alluded to the Bible passage simply by the act of turning water to wine. Or the one I like the best... Or I love a lot, maybe, is a better way to say it. Do you remember what day, I put it up there so now you do, what day Israel left Egypt? Passover. They put the lamb's blood on the door, you remember? And then they left Egypt. How long did it take them to get to Mount Sinai in that desert journey? Guess. It's a number the Bible always uses. 40. 40 took 40 days to get to the mountain. When they got to the mountain, what did Moses do? Went up to meet with God. And a few days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, what, was, what came down? The Ten Commandments. That's the pattern God established in Exodus. Now watch Jesus act that out. What day did Jesus die? Passover as the Lamb of God. And 40 days later, he went up on a mountain. And what did he do from the top of Mount of Olives? Ascended to meet with God. And 10 days later, on the feast of Pentecost, what came down? Holy Spirit. Notice the pattern for what he's doing is the story of Exodus. Now, if you don't think that's a connection, when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, what did he find Israel doing? Worshiping the golden calf. Threw down the tablets. My mother used to say, I'm the first guy since Moses to break all Ten Commandments at once. He threw the tablets down. And then what did he do to the people by way of discipline? Ground it up and made them drink it in their water. That's a fascinating story in itself and kind of bizarre. How many died? Say 3,000. So 3,000 people died when the Ten Commandments came down on Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, how many people believed? The writer wants you to take those little details and say, why 3,000? Often the answer is, that's the hook that brings you to the old treasures. Now, we spent the whole weekend doing that, so I can't expect those of you who had other activities this weekend to wrestle with all that in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, but I'd like to take one more example of that and show you one of the more profound, I think, links between the new treasures of Jesus and the old treasures of his Bible. In the gospels and i took one passage here from mark and 15 and one from matthew i forget i think it's 27 sorry i didn't put that up there notice two obscure details that really don't seem to matter notice he was crucified at the third hour what difference does it make i mean i believe it it's in the book but what difference does it make does it matter to you that he was crucified at 9 and not at 8:30 why is that important Why do I need to know that detail? And then he died at 3 or 9th hour. Why does that matter? Would it not have worked if he died at 3.15 or 5? Now, that would always lead a Jewish person to say, when those little details show up, I always ask, why does God want me to know that? And many times, that's his link back to an earlier place in the story. Now, to get that, I need to take you back to the early story. And you see at what point you will say, I got why those matter. So come with me to a very different place than where Jesus lived, Galilee, very tropical, or died, Jerusalem, right in the center of Israel. Come back with me to that brutal desert which makes up about 70% of the Jewish world. The land of the shepherd, which, by the way, since Christmas is coming up, are almost always girls. So when you do your Christmas program this year, make the shepherds girls. Don't give them beards. Adult men don't herd sheep normally. Anyway, that's just my little shot at what I think is culturally inaccurate Christmas customs. Anyway, here's the story. Living in a tent... In that desert is an old man and an old woman, husband and wife, named like this Arab friend of mine, Abraham. One day, as Abraham sat in the tent, God showed up. Now, it doesn't say how God showed up. He appeared, whether he was a fire or a light or a dove or a human, it doesn't say. It just says God shows up. And God makes a statement to Abraham, don't be afraid, which gives me an idea of what Abraham was thinking. I am your shield. In other words, I'm going to protect you. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. Imagine this afternoon, you're sitting in your favorite comfortable chair in your room watching that great Oakland Raiders football team you guys have out here. We Lions fans can finally say stuff like that after... 30 years of disaster. Just kidding. You're watching the game in that favorite chair of yours, and God showed up. I I mean, not like God is everywhere, so I know he's here too. I mean, you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was personally with you in that room at that moment. It wasn't, I wonder if that was God. It's, there he is. What would your reaction be? For me, like this lady here just said, I was brought up where God is awesome and holy, and I think there would be an incredible sense of overwhelming sin on my part to put me on my knees in the presence of God. I don't know, but I suspect that's where my heart would go. I know what my mind would be thinking. Why do I need a shield? What's supposed to happen? What are you going to protect me from? Why? But I wouldn't say that. But Abraham is Jewish. Now, that means all kinds of things. It also has a personality with it. You know, sort of like Dutch people have big noses because air's free. Jewish people have their own. I'm van der Laan, so I can say that kind of stuff. Dutch pe- I mean, uh, Jewish people have their own personality types. And one of the things they have is something called chutzpah. Abraham shows chutzpah. He doesn't even say thank you or I'm in awe of you, or I worship you, or I praise you. His first reaction is to grab God by the front of his shirt and say, where's my children? You promised me children. Have you seen my wife lately? She's like a senior citizen type. Where are these children you promised me? Come on. Now, you'd think God would say, listen, I'm God. You don't talk to me like that. But God seems to like it. He reacts very positively to such. Jews call that chutzpah. Say chutzpah. Chutzpah. Now today, chutzpah isn't such a nice word. Chutzpah means pushy, cut in line, take mine first, I get the biggest piece, I'm number one, get out of my way. It's pretty aggressive stuff. I had a friend send me a definition of what chutzpah is, a Jewish friend. And pure Eastern style, like those of you at the seminar, remember we talked about it's a story, not a definition. It goes like this. There's a little kid. How old are you? Seven. Seven. What grade are you in? Seven. Second grade. This kid was in third grade. And he went to Hebrew school, and the rabbi taught them the story of Jonah. Well, this kid went nuts. You remember the story of Jonah? This guy sinned, got thrown into the sea to drown, and God decided to send a whale to swallow him and rescue him. And he lived in that whale for three days, and all the stomach juices didn't digest him. He stayed alive. And at the end of three days, he swam up to the beach somewhere and vomited this guy out, covered with seaweed and yuck, but alive and well, while the kid went nuts. What an awesome God. That is amazing. I can't believe God does this. What a, what a great God we have to worship. He went home so excited, came in the door, he wouldn't let his mom finish making dinner. Sit down, I gotta tell you the Jonah story. Then dad came home from work. Sit down. Then grandpa and grandma had to come over. Then the cat and the dog. Then his brother and sister. even went across it. you know, the way you reacted the last time you heard a sermon on Jonah. Don't you remember your excitement? Monday morning he went back to school, public school. Teacher said, children, Today we're going to study whales. Yes, awesome. And the teacher said, "Whales are creatures with big mouths and little throats. They catch big prey, but they can't swallow it, so they have to chew it up." What about Jonah? Said the boy. Teacher said, "Oh, that's a nice story. We should read that in reading sometime, Um, but it's not true. It's an ancient myth. There aren't whales in the Mediterranean." And even if there were, and they swallow people, people don't stay alive inside of a stomach. That isn't a true story. That's a myth. My rabbi said, I know your rabbi. He's a nice man. He must think it's true, but it isn't. I'm a scientist. I can tell you. And they went back and forth. I'll make the long story short, until they were both pretty annoyed. Finally, the teacher said, that's it. You may believe that if you want. We can talk about it after class. I don't want to hear another word. I don't think that story happened, and we're not going to discuss it here. When I get to heaven, said the little boy, I'm gonna ask Jonah. Teacher said, Well, what if he isn't in heaven? Kid said, Then you ask him. (laughs) That's called chutzpah. (laughs) But in Bible times, chutzpah is a word that's much nicer. It's what you coaches want from good athletes. It's what you people who run marathons do to get yourself in shape. It is persistence. I won't quit. I won't give up. I'll never stop. There's nothing I won't do to accomplish it. It's an intense, persistent passion and refusal to quit. And God loves in the Bible hutzpah. It's the woman who comes to Jesus with a little baby and says, Jesus, my baby has a demon. Help me. And Jesus says, Lady, you aren't Jewish. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I can't help you. We don't give children's food to dogs. And she looks at Jesus and she says, Yeah, but dogs go under the table and eat crumbs. Haven't you got a crumb for me? For my baby? And Jesus says, I haven't seen faith. And I think the Hebrew word would have been chatzufo, which comes from the same root. I haven't seen persistence like that, even in Israel. And he healed that baby because she was persistent. Don't ever be afraid to wrestle intensely with God. He loves chutzpah. And so when Abram said, where are my kids? God said, calm down. Step outside. You see the stars? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Your descendants will be like this. And Abram said, that's good enough for me. And then God said, but I'm not done. I'm going to give you this land. Abraham didn't have enough land to bury his wife or to be buried himself. I'll give it to you. Abraham doesn't even say thank you. He says... How can I know for sure?
0: Prove it!
1: Wow. That's amazing to me. And God said, you want to know for sure? In modern English, he said, let's sign a contract. You draft it, we'll sign it. Now, they didn't have contracts. What they had were covenants. We'll make a covenant, a guarantee. So, Abram, let's make a covenant. Now, real quickly, I'm a teacher, so you need just a little bit of data. A covenant is not simply an agreement, it's a relationship. A king who makes a covenant with people calls them my children, they call him my father. A queen, my mother, my children. Why? Because a covenant not only binds you legally, it binds you relationally. That's why marriage is sometimes called the covenant of marriage. There are two types. One is what's called a parity covenant, which means it's between two people who are equal. That can't be this one because God and Abraham aren't equal besides there's a whole bunch of things that happen that don't fit a parity covenant. So we can discount that. The other, sorry about the big words, they're not necessary for you to know, is called a suzerain vassal covenant. What you should know is it's between unequals, a king and his subjects, someone who's defeated you and the defeated ones. That's a suzerainty treaty. That must be what this is for several reasons. Now, here's an important thing. In a covenant between greater and lesser, one of the distinct differences is this. And sorry, I act like a teacher, but that's what I am. It is the requirements that are laid on each side are all determined by the greater party. Each side, I'll do this, you have to do that. In an equal, a parity covenant, the person says, I'll do this, what will you do? And the person says, "Uh, okay, I'll do that. And you agree. Here, the greater party says, I'm going to do this, and I want you to do that. And if you won't agree to that, then there's no covenant. So God is going to set the requirements. So Abraham must have been thinking, okay, what will God do as the greater party? And God said, simple. Simple. I'll give you descendants like the stars. I'll give you this land forever. And in your descendants, listen to this, every people group in the world will be blessed. Now, I put the word Messiah up there in quotes because I believe that's how God fulfilled that prophecy. When Messiah came, it was one of Abram's descendants Who did what he did for every people group in the world? So Abraham must have been thinking, this is incredible. God's going to give me descendants, which he's already promised. He's going to give me land, a place for my descendants to live. And we're going to be such people of God that every single people group will be blessed. I wonder what I have to do. And it's as if God said, well, really, nothing. Just don't ever sin. Ever. Ever. I suspect Abram's thinking, ouch, maybe that chutzpah isn't everything it's cracked up to be. And then God said, you ready to sign? Now by us, we'd gather in an office and you'd have people on both sides of the table and you'd have 500 copies of something and you'd start signing. In their culture, the greater party tells the lesser party to go get the 500 papers. Except they're not 500 papers, they're animals. Go get a cow, a sheep, a goat, a pigeon. And a dove. Notice what Abraham did. He got the animals exactly as God said, but then he proceeded to kill them and cut them in half, except the two birds he simply killed, and lay those half animals cow, sheep, goat, and then pigeon, dove across from each other. Now, some of you are farm boys and girls or hunters. Imagine the amount of blood if you kill a sheep, a goat, and a cow to say nothing of the little bit that would come from the bird. It creates something that looks like this. A path or a puddle of blood. Now, the fact Abraham cut those animals up, even though God didn't tell him tells us that was a cultural custom he understood. He didn't have to be told what to do. So he's following cultural practice, which, by the way, they still do to this day. I wish I had more time. I don't, I would tell you the story of the one I saw one time. Anyway, it produces this. And then, each party in turn, starting with the greater always, steps up to the blood, today taking off their sandals, I would assume so in Bible times. Without words, you walk back and forth in that animal blood. The picture says, if I don't keep my requirements, you may do this to me. And then the lesser party would step up and say, okay, if I don't keep the requirements you've given me, you may do this to me. As Abraham sat there, I happened to know that he was scared out of his mind I think because he knew if he put his little toe in the blood, he was a dead man. He couldn't be sinless, nor could his descendants. He touched that blood, he was assigning himself to death. There would be no need of land, there would be no descendants, and there certainly wouldn't be someone who would bless all people groups of the world. I know he was scared because the text says a thick and dreadful darkness fell over him, a colloquial expression in Hebrew that in English means he was scared to death to this day. And as he sat, I assume trembling, and the sun set, two symbols appeared. Apparently, the greater and the lesser. The first, a fire pot, and smoke was coming out of it. A fire pot is a place the women keep the coals during the night. They put the stopper on it. I saw it years ago today. Of course, they have lighters just like we do, but the smoke would come out of there like out of your grill all night. In the morning, you gather some sticks and straw, you pour the coals on there, and you've got fire for the day. A smoke metaphor. And the second, a blazing torch. First, the fire pot went through the blood. Now, that's got to represent God for two reasons. The obvious one, it's first. Always the greater party first. There's no known exceptions. But in the Bible, often connected with God's appearance is Smoke. The pillar of smoke, the tabernacle fills with smoke when he's in it, the temple fills with smoke when Isaiah is in because when Isaiah is in the temple because God is in there. And so picture God. God came down to earth to say to that old man and woman, I love you and I want to use you to bless all humanity. And since you are either Jewish, and one of his descendants, or like me, Gentile, and were grafted in and adopted through Jesus, he came down to say this to you. And as that that fire pot passed through the pieces, God said, if I don't keep my word, you may do this to me. I suppose Abraham might have been thinking, yeah, right. That's easy for you. You never break your word. Of course you will do what you said. You didn't have to walk in there, and it's as if God said, I know I didn't, but I wanted you to know how serious I was. And then it was Abraham's turn. I suppose in a way he stepped up to put his foot in the blood Shaking like a leaf, knowing if he touched that blood, it was finished. Instead, the torch moved through the blood. Now, what the ancient Jewish sages noted already is that in the Bible, there is not one single example ever, and I would add to them, or in the New Testament, where fire represents a human being. Fire always represents God, always. The burning bush, the pillar of fire, the tabernacle, the temple, and I would add as a Christian, the tongues of fire on Pentecost. That second symbol is God. And so it's as if as Abraham lifted his foot, God said, no. Let me. And God went back in a second time to say, if you, Abraham, you, Sarah, or any of you, his descendants, spiritually or physically, ever sin, you may do this to me. And at that moment, God sentenced Jesus Christ to death. If you wanna know where in the Bible the death sentence is pronounced, it's right here. I see Jesus in heaven watching his father sentence him to die. There is no doubt that Abraham and his descendants will sin. Time passed. About 400 years later, God said, Moses, I don't want people to forget that moment, so here's the deal. You're to build me a tabernacle and an altar exactly this size of uncut stones, and I want you to make an offering twice a day. Choose one of those five animals. Make sure people know this is a remembrance of Abraham by choosing those five animals, no others. And I want you to make an offering twice a day to remind Israel they're supposed to ask me, God, please do what you promised and forgive us. And I suppose Moses thought, every day, every day. What if it's raining? Then you will get wet. What if it's Shabbat, Sabbath? Do it on Shabbat. It's a greater commandment. What about holidays? Especially on holidays. Oy, What time? God said, twice a day. How about nine, the third hour, or three, the ninth hour? You know why Jesus was crucified at the moment he was? Does it make sense why it's important that he died at three? As you learned this weekend, it's in the book. And so they did. For 1,200 plus years, they would catch that blood and throw it against the altar to say, God, you promised Abraham, we've sinned, forgive us. First in the tabernacle, that tent, church. Then the temple that Solomon built. And then that incredible renovation that Herod produced that Jesus would have known. Now by Jesus' time, that had become an elaborate ceremony. Here's the temple in a map of Jerusalem. On this corner was a special platform. One model shows it like this. I like this rendering better. You can see that tower, and notice the small figure on the upper right. It's what it looks like today. Notice the arch on this picture, the big arch, not the little ones, but the big one. Here you can see where that arch emerges out of the Temple Mount. It's been destroyed, the arch has. It's about this high today. On that corner, There was a niche that looked like this, and in that niche, just before nine and just before three, a priest would stand with a shofar, not the Roman trumpet, but a shofar. We know that so well because when they did the archaeology, they found the niche that the Romans had destroyed. It even says on it the place of the blowing of the shofar. Standing in that niche was a trained priest with his shofar. Not far away from that corner was the temple. In front of it was a large altar. I'll show you another model, not quite as accurate, but you can see the altar a little better. The altar is right here with those four fires on it. And just next to the altar at 5 to 3, 5 to 9, a priest would stand with his knife at the throat of one of those five animals. Somewhere, another trained priest would watch a sundial or on a cloudy day, an hourglass. And when it was nine o'clock or three o'clock, the signal would be given to the priest on the tower and he would call Israel to stand for a moment to seek God's forgiveness with that ancient desert sound. In the silence, the city would fall quiet. Knowing the priest would cut the neck of the sacrifice, catch the spurting blood, and throw it against the altar to say, God, please, your promise. For 1,200 years, twice a day. Come with me to one of those days, just like any other. One, two differences. The city is packed. It's a holiday, big one. And two, just outside the city wall, probably on the north side, three men hang on crosses. They were nailed there as the shofar blew at nine o'clock. Announcing a sacrifice is to be made. They've hung there all day. I suppose you might have thought that one in the middle looked at this point like he he was already dead. Hadn't said anything in a while. The priest is watching an hourglass for it's strangely dark. It's five minutes to three, It's three minutes to three, and then it's three o'clock. And the signal is given. And again, through that packed city, that ancient sound. And the man in the middle raised his head. And in the gagging, choking voice of a crucifixion victim, he screamed,
0: It's finished!
1: And he died at exactly the ninth hour, just the way his father promised. And his blood dripped into the same ancient dust where his father had walked in blood. And I don't think it is finished simply meant my suffering here or even my earthly life. I think it also meant, it's all finished! I
0: did it! I kept your word.
1: It's an old story. Most of you could have told it too, the Jesus part. It's amazing how two phrases, third hour and ninth hour, roots it deeply in those old treasures so that the story hits you even harder than if only you knew the story. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me. Father, I never have words to go on at this moment. The picture of your son hanging there waiting to be told by the shofar when to die The picture of his blood reminding us, you, of that promise you made in 1800 years earlier to Abraham and Sarah. I wanna thank you for the power of the story. I wanna thank you for the fact you kept your word, and we know that that covenant is still intact. But I would also ask, Father, not only for this morning but as a result of our study this weekend, that we would be reminded that it's one unified story and that if we pay attention to your detail, it helps to link us back to the old treasures, making the new treasures even more powerful and clear. In the name of our messiah your faithful son amen would you stand please in the hebrew bible god said whenever my people meet including worship and they're finished send them out with these words and i want to give you that blessing you'll you'll recognize it of course because he said, by doing that, you put my name on them. If you will receive this blessing, not only with your ears, but with your heart, you walk out this morning with God's very name imprinted on your soul, on your heart, and on the path you walk. Yevarechika Adonai v'ishmerecha, Ye'er Adonai panavalecha v'hunecha, Isa Adonai panavalecha shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his shalom. Amen. Bring God's shalom to a broken world. God bless you. Thank you.